everyone and welcome to Raya Affairs. We are continuing our series Climate Leaders 101 today. Over the course of six episodes, we'll be discussing reports on climate leaders from all around the world ahead of the COP27, truly analyzing what makes them a climate leader or not. But before I go any further into this partnership, I wanted to introduce my co-host for this episode. So joining me is Meryl, a project development intern at Raya and a recent international relations graduate from the Netherlands. And if you heard our episode on MBZ, Meryl was on there too. So hi, Meryl, welcome back. Would you mind telling our listeners what Raya is and what it does based on what you've learned so far? Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this new episode of Raya Affairs. Here's a quick summary of what we do at Raya. We are an international think tank led by young professionals that translate the abstract world of international affairs by simplifying rather than generalizing. Raya is where you can learn about the stories and worries of political leaders, the behind the scenes of decision makers and how politics impacts and changes your life. This is Raya Affairs, filling you in wherever you are. All right, so you've heard it here and like every other episode, but about the Climate Leaders series. Over the next following weeks, we're dedicating our episodes to climate leaders in collaboration between Raya, IE University School of Global and Public Affairs, Ayuda and Acción, and it's all under the umbrella of the EU Commission's initiative, One Planet for All. We're here in this podcast because One Planet for All is a project that seeks to promote the participation of European youth in the fight against climate change. So over the summer break, six IE students, including our guests for today, underwent 10 weeks of RIA training, just familiarizing themselves with the RIA methodology, right, focusing on the individual and other research-related seminars. These reports will be published on the RIA website. So as always, we would like to make it clear that the expressed opinions in this episode are welcome, even though they're not a direct reflection of RIA. RIA specializes in unbiased writing and analysis of international relations. And lastly, if you missed it, last episode, we discussed climate activists Greta Thunberg and Luisa Neubrauer with Covadonga Gafo. We got into how both activists took similar yet distinct paths of advocacy, as well as their joint movement, which is the Fridays for Future. We really went into detail into the criticisms they both face and how they have had true impact on younger generations, as well as on the 2019 European Parliament elections. So make sure to check out that episode or Kova's report on the RIA website. Thank you, Marina, for reminding our listeners about the last podcast. Today, we will continue our Climate Leaders 101 podcast with our IE student and RIA summer intern, Martina Volman. She will tell us all about Abi Ahmed, the Ethiopian Prime Minister. His motivations, the challenges he faces, and climate projects will be on the agenda. And do not forget to stay for our last part of the episode, Connecting the Dots, in which we will connect the Tigray War with Abi Ahmed's leadership. Marina, on to you. All right, so without th further ado, hi Martina and welcome to Raya Affairs. Tell us a bit about yourself, so where you're from, what do you do, and why you were interested in joining the Raya and IE Summer Program. Hi, Marina and Meryl. Thank you so much for having me. Um, a little bit about myself. I'm from Buenos Aires, Argentina, although I've lived in Berlin, Germany and the US for a short period of time. I am currently a third year business and international relations student at IE, which is exactly how I found about, about RAYA and the research programs, as the organization is led by IE alumni. In fact, the fact that Raya was guided by a familiar environment was one of the first things that called my attention about it. 
But what really convinced me to join Raya was the possibility of embarking in a rich professional research environment. Being an IR student, the research program provided me with invaluable coaching in skills essential to IR professionals. Also, the Raya methodology, which is exploring leaders through both psychological and structural pressures, allowed me to reflect on a research topic through multiple lenses and put my curiosity into practical use. Well, it's definitely great to hear that you have had certain skills and you can put them into practice from the summer program. But now this next question is a fun one because we always ask our guests and we, they always come up with some interesting answers. So Martina, what leader, dead or alive, who has impacted the world would you like to have an opportunity to have a conversation with if you could? Okay, so that's a tough question. If I could, I would like to have a conversation with um, the Argentine judges that have brought Argentina's dictators from the 70s to the Strand and eventually convicted them. And I know this is oddly specific, um, but I just watched a movie on the topic and I have come to admire like their bravery to face such figures back then when the dictators still had immense terrorizing power. Um, it must have taken an incredible amount of courage and moral conviction uh, in the rights of democracy to put such action in place. Wow, thank you, Martina. That will be definitely be an interesting conversation worth noting. So for now, let's get into the topic of today's podcast and start off with some background information. Could you tell us a bit more about Abish Ahmed, who he is, his upbringing and the factors that led to his rise to power as prime minister? Okay, so Abiy Ahmed is Ethiopia's prime minister as of 2018, and his name might ring a bell to you as he was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize in 2018 for reverting a 30-year-long war with Eritrea. Becoming a PM at the age of 41, he is one of the youngest heads of government in the world. This categorization of the first or the youngest has also helped with his profiling of his persona, to his audience, he is a modernist leader, aiming at transforming Ethiopia into a new country more aligned with Western liberal values. Other traits have also formed this picture of a constrained challenger leader, such as, on the one hand, Abiy Ahmed is a child of a mixed marriage in both religious and ethnic terms, an upbringing that taught him the values of tolerance and unity. Being raised as such has turned him into the result of a success story in what many Ethiopians see as irreconcilable, as ethnic conflict in Ethiopia has been and still is one of the main sources of social and political unrest. When looking at his biography, one event can be understood as a scar in Abi's life, the incarceration of Abi Ahmed's father and the killing of his stepbrother during his teenage years for opposing the ruler's communist regime. His family's enmity to the ruling communism pushed him to the to join his, the political opposition, which is the Oromo Democratic Party, in the fight against the Derg after turning 15. This political alignment therefore pushed Abiy Ahmed to favor neoliberal economic policies. As a young adult, Abiy also joined the military, thus being constantly faced with conflict and consequent peacekeeping efforts. Furthermore, having participated in the military led him to be a result-oriented politician, 
and have a tendency to take action after having meticulously calculated risks. Thank you, Rutina, for this broad overview. So as you say that he is a new leader where he wants to align his country more with Western liberal values. So in this transition, do you have any examples that you can give of this modernized profile that we can observe in his current governance? Exactly. His young age, as well as his biography as a whole, are not only represented in his individual psychological profiling of a liberal modernizer, but are also translated into his policies. And some examples are the following. In 2018, he appointed an unprecedented cabinet that included 50% of women. Then in his first year in power, he also managed to take a new approach in regards to religious practices, highlighting the right to religious freedom. And lastly, the peace accords with Eritrea and his Nobel Peace Prize Award um, I just mentioned are also examples of how his deal-breaker persona are translated into action. All right, so thanks, Martina, for that background. But what I'm personally interested in is the, the philosophy that you mentioned that Ahmed has built, the Medimer philosophy. So what is this philosophy and how does it tie together to the current challenges facing Ethiopia, particularly regarding ethnic tensions? So Medimer is the guiding philosophy for Abi Ahmed's rule. Meaning unity in Amharic, one of Ethiopia's official languages, it represents in bold terms the idea of a pan-Ethiopian patriotism directed under Abiy Ahmed's tool of pathos. As such, with Medimer, he poses the idea of building a successful democracy with industrial development, religious freedom and domestic unity. To him, Medimer is a way to ideologically guide the country into its liberation from its autocratic, archaic, authoritarian past. In part, his background is reflected in Medimer. It is due to his own upbringing, as well as his encounters with conflict, that Abiy Ahmed quickly became an activist for building a united Ethiopia. Medimer ties to the current challenges of his country as he is currently combating a civil war in the Tigray region, and Medimer is the rhetoric he uses so as to provide a symbolic contest to the opposing forces. Okay, so now that we've already touched upon some challenges, as you mentioned, faced by this leader, let's narrow down to what we really came to discuss today. So his climate agenda. What would you say are the main motivations for Abiy Ahmed when it comes to a climate agenda? In other words, what would you say are his stakes? So according to my research, there are three main structural motivations for Abiy Ahmed to take on his climate agenda. Firstly, it's providing solutions to the poor macroeconomic crisis, threatening the country's development and its social stability. Secondly, the country's vulnerabilities to climate change, causing internal displacement and food insecurity. And thirdly, the leaders and his regime's need to gain favorable public approval for its systemic survival. So Martina, it would be fair to say that it does not seem that climate change is Ahmed's main concern. In your report, you mentioned his 10 years perspective development plan, where the main focus is not climate change, but rather a pillar of the plan and more connected to building a resilient green economy, hence economic development. This begs the question, and is actually a curiosity of us, why is climate relevant at all for Amit? You said it, climate action is not the main goal of Avi's government. 
However, this does not mean that he's absolutely opposed to taking on climate action. Rather, Abi Ahmed will adopt policies that have a positive impact on climate, but that are not mainly directed at solving climatic threats. It's as if these policies were mostly aimed at other goals, such as development or structural survival or national unity, but are being addressed as climate action as they have a positive overflowing, per se, into environmental mitigation strategies. Why is climate relevant for Avi personality? When looking at the personal pressure points, climate matters for Avent as the climatic vulnerabilities threatening his country could obstruct the fulfillment of the pan-Ethiopian unity he foresees. Environmental action is seen by him as a remaining tool to push towards his goal of a unified country. The passing of successful environmental projects could help depict national pride and thus build on Midimer. In short, climate leadership is also essential to him because it's a tool for him to gain favorable public, national and international approval, a highly staked after goal for him, especially in present times with the war in Tigray. So Martina, now we get to the defining moment of Abiy Ahmed, that speech, event or key action plan that has really transformed them from an individual with power to a true uh, leader when a change in their political stance, right? So what was Abiy Ahmed's defining moment that made him a climate leader? My research has depicted Abiy Ahmed's defining moment to be his acceptance speech for the Nobel Peace Prize he was awarded in 2018 for his peacekeeping efforts with Eritrea. Now, one might argue that this event is not specifically related to Abiy's emergence as a climate leader. However, this event is as generous as a defining moment could be for the correct understanding of the leader's profile. It showcases the leader's relationship with climate action as best as possible with his acceptance speech clearly outlining the logic behind his agenda prioritization. The speech is particularly interested because it is a retelling through his own words of the romantic perspective through which he views his country's environment and landscape, and also highlights his pragmatic thinking, wherein he avoids referring to sustainability and environmental action as crucial spheres in policymaking. Furthermore, the event portrays Abbey's characterization of a messiah and reveals psychological traits such as his realist logic, his experience through his childhood, his focus on ethnic and religious unity. Thus, this speech allows us to grasp his doctrine in a more rounded manner through his narrations of childhood and his vision for Ethiopia's future. So Martina, while we would love to get into specifics of all the projects and, it, and solutions that Abish has implemented regarding climate change, we wanted to focus a bit more on his Green Legacy project. Could you tell us what the project is, its aims nationally and at other levels of analysis, and its progress thus far? Sure. Green Legacy is a national reforestation project that hopes to plant 20 billion trees over the 2019-2022 period. Up to now, the project has shown record-breaking success, with the campaign even planting 
354 million seedlings within a 12-hour span in 2019. Martina, you mentioned in your report that this project, the Green Legacy Project, will only see the fruits in several years, maybe even the next generation. Thus, it's one that will really only pay off in the long term. And some things we always analyze and think about is how politicians are driven by results of the immediate future. They're always thinking about the next elections. So why is Ahmed taking upon himself such an effort? And would his Medimer ideology possibly fit in the rationale behind undertaking this project? Exactly. Unlike other of his green policies, the green legacy is the only one specifically holding a long-term scope. The reasons for his insistence in the project, despite its distant results, are threefolded. Firstly, Green Legacy's outstanding success has served Abby to raise national and international public opinion, but it has also helped his government to depict efficiency and to unify the country. In this regard, it is clear that the initiative is not solely aiming at turning back the climate clock. Rather, it is also a vehicle to foster public awareness on the threat of deforestation for the country's survival. Moreover, such a goal is rather intertwined with Abby's more general ambition of increasing national pride and unity, the key of his Medimer philosophy. Abby's rhetoric speaks for itself. He is presenting the project under the principle of a nation combating a common enemy, aiming to engage the whole of Ethiopia's population, thus fostering national unity beyond the long-standing ethnic divides. In this regard, Green Legacy is a project that perfectly describes Abby's personal stake in the environment. So there you have it, guys. Great connections made by Martina. And another project that Abi Ahmed has started is the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, or the GERD. This hydroelectric dam would generate about 90% of Ethiopian electricity supply. So Martina, could you tell us why this project is so significant for Abi and for other stakeholders? That's right. In this case, unlike Green Legacy, what is being shown is Abi's structural stake in the environment, the macroeconomic incentives guiding his climate agenda. The policy is designed to bring great economic gains and create a sense of national pride through the establishment of energy security and independence. It is said to have the potential to make Ethiopia a continental energy producer, a huge step in the country's aspirations towards economic prosperity and the attainment of regional power and influence. Furthermore, the dam would also become a way to represent a modernization process in terms of the promotion of development projects carried out by the Abbey administration, elevating it as an icon of national pride and unity, and thus also allowing it to become a palpable symbol of the achievement of Medimer. Thank you, Martina. As you say, its construction represents a unity that is not always present in Ethiopia. However, criticism exists. For instance, the first time the dam generated energy was only last February given delays in production and corruption charges surrounding the initial construction company, Demetek, disrupted the dam's progress. Could you tell us about the challenges that have and are happening regarding this project? Indeed, the GERD has endured several implementation and construction challenges. 
Locally, construction had been handed to the country's military industrial conglomerate, the Maytech, but it had to be handed to foreign companies in 2019 after corruption charges. Furthermore, the Gerd's construction was interrupted on several occasions by Abbey's political opposition. Internationally, concerns over the Gerd's construction and filling have been raised by Egypt and Sudan, who have voiced that the dam could limit their share of the Nile's flow and thus damage their land, having catastrophic consequences for their agricultural and industrial development. Overall, however, the dispute is part of a greater argument on regional power, who controls the Nile's basin. Okay, Martina, so you've mentioned Abiy Ahmed's impact throughout, you know, these answers that you've given us. But to finish off this main part of our podcast, we always ask our guests whether they think that the leader of today is a climate leader. Now, the most interesting part of your report was how you really mentioned that as readers and as analysts ourselves, we must take a step back away from what is a Western-centric understanding of climate leadership. And it's true, environmentalism is defined differently based on the institutions, the GDP, and the values of a population. So regarding these different perspectives, point blank, is Abiy Ahmed a climate leader? As I stated in the report, the answer to this question is not a short one. It took me a whole summer to come up with it. To me, Abiy Ahmed is and isn't a climate leader. He is not a climate leader as he doesn't have a unified environmental policy with his main climate strategies focused on development and political survival. In this regard, environmental policies serve as means to his ends. However, he is a climate leader if we look at him through a more flexible lens. If we look at his policies beyond the intentions that have pushed him to implement them, and mostly judging the results. The initiatives have been extremely successful as they have involved various stakeholders, have proved efficient in their construction and negotiation, and functional for their decarbonization efforts. Furthermore, Abby is able to focus on the sectors that are particularly important to the vast of his population, agriculture and energy, thus pushing for solutions that will greatly impact Ethiopia as a whole and not only, even if also, the elites. Okay, so thank you, Martina, for the various insights we've had into Abi Ahmed. We will now continue with a new segment in our podcast, which we call Connecting the Dots. So our aim in this short little segment is to really connect our climate leader at hand with just a wider IR topic. So it can be development, human rights, foreign policy, security. Last episode, we even focused on the COVID-19 pandemic. So again, we're just here to show how interconnected global politics is. So while we were reading your report, we came across the criticism you mentioned that Ahmed receives internationally in his handling of the Tigray War. For our listeners, this is a civil war between the Tigray People's Liberation Front and Abi Ahmed's federal government. A war that started in 2020 because Abi Ahmed had ordered a military offense against regional forces in Tigray, because the Tigray region resisted some of Abi's reforms. 
The Tigray War has aggravated the existing humanitarian crisis in Ethiopia, of which Ahmed has had to balance with, for example, 400,000 Ethiopians facing famine in the region alone. As Martina remarks in her writing, the war demonstrates a gap between the initial idealism shown by the leader versus his short-term and unorganized efforts to deal with the conflict. Recently, the UN has published an investigation accusing government forces of abuse that could amount to war crimes, especially the Ethiopian government. Can we hence connect the dots between the deterioration in Ahmed's international reputation due to his handling of the war and how this affects his economic funding from Western donors, funding needed for his green legacy project, for instance? Totally. It's just as you're putting it to be. To me, the Tigray War is a clear before and after moment in Abby's career. It marks a turning point, not only in the outside world's view of his government, but also in how he views politics himself. As for the external public opinion, the international support clearly shifted as of the launch of the war, with initial Western supporters now pressing for international intervention in Ethiopia's handling of the humanitarian crisis and conflict overall. But as for his own more internal transformation, the breakout of the war shows a gap between the initial long-term idealist vision of his speeches versus the current short-term unrehearsed efforts to deal with this challenge. Thank you, Martina, for connecting this dot for us. It is interesting to see how such a moment divides Ahmed's leadership. Martina, as the podcast comes to an end now, I always like to conclude by saying that with Raya Affairs, we learn something new. And it's the same today. You have given us a detailed analysis of a leader I don't believe we hear about as often in the media, Abi Ahmed. And you've helped us answer our core question, is he a climate leader? So we began by exploring his upbringing, where you've described how tolerance and constant conflict has helped his rise to politics. As a young leader, he has really brought about liberal reform to Ethiopia, including his own philosophy to help ease ethnic tensions and to reignite this pan-Ethiopian nationalism. And when it comes to the climate agenda, your research showed that economic development has high relevance and priority. Thus, we analyzed how three factors, a microeconomic crisis, Ethiopia's own vulnerabilities to climate change, and Ahmed's need to gain favorable public opinion, have driven his 10 years development plan, of which, for those of you that don't know, Martina outlines more in her report. As part of the last pillar of this development plan, Martina gave us information about the Green Legacy Project, a reforestation initiative. She helped us then understand why... Ahmed was taking this project upon himself and taking upon such an effort, especially if it will only afford him results in the long term. And before evaluating Abiy Ahmed's final impact regarding climate change mitigation policies, Martina helped us explore his political challenges. So both regarding his international reputation as to how he's dealing with domestic conflict and his international reputation when it comes to another project, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Finally, and something we should note that Martina reminded us of, is that to describe Abi Ahmed as a climate leader, one must have a very flexible perspective of what environmentalism is. So that was very impressive. Thank you very much, Martina, for taking the time really out of your week to come on here at Raya Fairs and for showing us what you've learned and what you've researched in your time with Raya. 
Well, Marina and Merel, thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much to Raya and IE for the opportunity. Thank you, Martina. And for those of you who are interested and have enjoyed our discussion today and you want to read Martina's report, it will be linked in the episode description, but you can also find her research on rayagroup.org. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram, raya.now, for latest updates, articles, and episodes of this podcast. It was a pleasure hosting this episode today. We're your co-hosts, Miro and Marina. Goodbye from us and thanks for tuning in. Have a great day in your sphere of influence.